Uh, I'm really looking forward to what's coming up the next few weeks for us as a church family. Next week, obviously, is huge as we celebrate Easter and proclaim the reality that at Brookside, we serve a risen and living Savior. And so keep inviting friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't have a church home to that. And I encourage you as well, uh, for your own hearts, just as we look ahead to next weekend, to next Sunday, take some time this week and do some intentional things to begin preparing your own heart for everything we celebrate next Sunday. Our, our Good Friday service on Friday is, is one great way to, to do that. And then after Easter, a team of eight of us are leaving for Zambia. I'll be over there to help train a group of 21 pastors in the areas of Bible and theology, which is awesome. And then the rest of the team at Brookside is heading over there to do also, also, also awesome stuff, uh, where they're really showing love and caring for the youth in the capital city of Lusaka. And then about seven hours outside of that in Serenje at the Hope Center, this orphanage we've been partnering with together for over 10 years now, they're also loving on and caring for the 60-plus orphans that are part of that. And so I, I love that we're a church that leans in to what God is doing here in our place here in Omaha, but also around the world in places like Zambia. And so before I do anything else this morning, let's just take a minute and, and let's pray for Easter next weekend, and let's pray for that team and that trip going to Zambia. So Jesus, we thank you that in your death and resurrection, we find life Jesus, may next week be a celebration of the truth that we serve, a living king. And Jesus, may many people find you for the, for the very first time next week, or maybe even just rediscover fresh things about the life that you offer as we celebrate your resurrection. Jesus, thank you that we're a church that's part of what you're doing to build your church around the world. Grant the team traveling to Zambia safety. Jesus, grant us unity, certainly as a team, and then also with the brothers and sisters we'll be partnering with in Zambia. And Jesus, grant us grace as we teach and show your love to others. Jesus, may the love you've shown all of us, may it fill us up so much that we over, overflow uh, with your love to others, showing it in, in our words and our actions. Jesus, thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, one more thing to look forward to after Easter uh, after Easter, we've got four Sundays coming up that are defining moment type Sundays for the life of our church, where we're going to just share with you all a little bit more about what's coming up in the next season for us as a church family. So circle those Sundays on your calendar. Make sure you're here for each of them to find out what's going on and what's coming up. Well, the book of James in the New Testament is such a worthwhile book to look at and, look at and study closely together. James was the brother of Jesus who had his own life radically changed by Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. Up until that point, James had actually done a pretty good job of keeping Jesus at arm's length up until that point. But, but, but Jesus is risen from the dead, encounters James, and James's life pivots. And so James knows all about what it's like to go from being a skeptic about Jesus to, to following Jesus, to placing his faith in Jesus as an adult. James knows all about the very practical difference that following Jesus makes in our everyday lives. And so today, we're on the final leg of our race through James. We've actually been in James, counting today, for the last 11 weeks. And in every passage we've looked at, James brings up things we face today a lot 
right? This is so relevant for our lives in the 21st century. He talks about how to respond to trials and temptations. He talks about loving others, how how all people matter to God, even in a society of haves and have-nots. He talks about this important relationship between, between what we say and what we do, our faith and our works. He talks about our words, true wisdom. He talks about conflict, decision-making, stewardship, patience, and a whole lot more. In each of these areas, James looks us square in the eye, and he tells us how to live in the way that God designed us to live, how to live in a way that honors God. He doesn't pull any punches. Get this. The book of James is made up of 108 total verses. And in those 108 total verses, there are 59 different commands. And so James cares deeply about how we, how we live, how you live, and he's not bashful in telling us how to do that. What Jesus, following Jesus, means for our lives. Now, it's really important to understand that James is never telling us to do any of this as a way to earn favor with God. James knows that it's the gospel that is our hope and our confidence of right standing with God. Not anything we do or not anything we bring to the table, but what Jesus has done for us in his cross, in his death and resurrection. But even knowing that, it's still easy to get done with a book like James and all the commands that he gives us over the course of the five chapters of James and to feel a little overwhelmed at all the stuff James is telling us to do, to feel a little exhausted or feel a little intimidated. A couple of years ago, I was, I was talked into running a, a five-mile race with a friend, not something I normally volunteer myself for. And every piece of that was work for me, the race itself, but also the, the training that we regimented out before that. So, so obviously, when you're training for a race like this, you slowly work yourself up to running four, five, six miles, so you're ready for the race itself. And on some of those days, some of those long run days where I ran four miles, five miles, I just remember being like hunched over, hands on my knees, having a near-death experience, you know, like panting, exhausted. If we're not careful, that's how we can leave James. That's how we can feel by the time we get to where we're at in the book. James has been pushing us hard. And I'm so glad, though, that, J- that, that that's not the way James ends the book, that he doesn't end on this point of, ex- of exhaustion. Instead, James leads us to the one who makes any true, deep, real, lasting change possible. In the last eight verses of James, the dominant theme is prayer. In verses 13 through 18, prayer is mentioned in every verse. It's almost like James wants to remind us that that the stuff he's been telling us to do, all those commands, all of it should be done in a posture of dependence on God. And that's really what prayer is. Prayer is talking with God. It's it's looking to him. It's living all of life in relationship to him. More than anything else I can think of, prayer is an expression of dependence. Because, Because other than bringing my requests to God, and praising him and everything else that prayer is, I bring nothing to the table in prayer. I'm not doing anything. Like nothing else, prayer expresses our dependence on our Heavenly Father. Prayer reminds us that we're not supposed to do life in isolation from God. Because if I take everything that James tells me to do, 
And if I divorce that from a relationship with God, from who God is, if I divorce that from prayer, then all of James's commands, they're just demands. It is duty, and it's discouraging, to be honest. But when I take everything James tells me to do in James, all of those commands scattered around the 108 verses, and when I add a relationship with God to that, when I add prayer to that, those commands become desires in relationship with God, independence on him. And so we all need what James tells us here in James 5 about prayer. I, I certainly need what James tells us here. Because I'll say right up front that prayer is one of those things I'm always trying to grow in myself. It's one of those spiritual habits that just doesn't, that doesn't come as naturally or as easily to me like some others do. And so what, what this passage says about prayer, it increases my own conviction that prayer isn't some take-it-or-leave-it practice for a select few. It's not optional just for the super spiritual. Prayer is for all of us, and prayer makes a tremendous difference. The more I've, I've swum in this passage over the course of this last week, the more convinced I am the, 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 that I want to be a man of prayer. It motivates me to pray. And by the time we're done, I want you to leave feeling and seeing the same sorts of things, that the prayer is for you and that prayer makes a difference. I want you to leave here seeing that the person you've been praying for, maybe for a really long time, I want you to have this conviction that you want to keep praying for them. For some of you, the, the prayer is maybe brand new to you. You've never even tried it out. I want you to leave here seeing that, that inviting God's presence and activity into your life is actually profoundly transforming in all of the right ways. So I'm going to read James 5, verses 13 to 20 for us, just so we get our, uh, just so we get our way all the way to the end of the book of James. And then we're going to come back, we're going to focus just on verses uh, 13 through 18. And as I read, keep your own eyes out for what this passage says about the priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and then the power of prayer. So here's James 5, starting in verse 13. James says, is, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being. This, this Old Testament prophet is who Elijah is. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the, heaven gave, the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So let's start with what James tells us about the priority of prayer in our lives. And, and hang with me here. This isn't just what you're supposed to hear in a church, the priority of prayer, right? This isn't just church speak. 
and you'll see why in just a second. At the very beginning of this passage, James tells us to pray when things are going really tough, and he tells us to pray when things are going really well. And so in one sense, James is telling us when to pray. Pray all the time in every circumstance. This is just his way of telling us what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing or to pray continuously. But there's more to it than that. Because we see here not only when to pray, we see something here about why to pray. Because the only reason James would tell you to pray in every circumstance is if prayer is really, really, really important. Here's what one guy that I read this week says about this verse. He says, James begins this section with the importance of prayer. There's no situation in life where prayer to God is not relevant or right. No situation where prayer isn't relevant or right. Our whole lives are to be lived in relation to God. And so James tells us to pray in every circumstance because he knows what will happen in us and to us if we don't pray like this, right? If we don't remember the priority of prayer. If we don't remember the priority of prayer, when bad things happen, we will retreat within ourselves and we will get only angry. We will only complain. And we'll just become a people who are bitter and isolated. Or if, if we forget the priority of prayer in good times, we will grow arrogant and we will grow independent, forgetting all of the ways God is actively involved in the blessings we experience. Nobody wants to live this way. Nobody wants to be characterized by words like arrogance, bitterness, isolation, independence. Nobody wants that. James knows this. He knows that this is the way God designed us to live. And so he tells us to pray in the good times and in the bad times. Because when we remember God in the tough times, it doesn't mean that our circumstances change. It doesn't mean everything magically happens differently overnight. Instead, what praying in the tough times does is it reminds us that God is present with you, even when things are so, so tough. Even when you don't know what to do or how to respond, it reminds you that there's a who there with you. Someone is there alongside of you that you can, that you can turn to and lean on, a rock and a refuge, an ever-present help in times of trouble. It reminds you that there's a larger perspective that you need to keep in mind. Because when, when we're in tough times, the, the stuff we see is the stuff that's right in front of us. And it's, it's, it's difficult to see around that. But, but prayer, like, like nothing else, helps us remember that there's a bigger perspective than what's right in front of us. And prayer reminds you that, that even if it's just the, the, the glimpse of a glimpse, prayer reminds you that there's always hope. Or when we pray in the good times, when we remember God then, we are, we are reminded of how much of everything we enjoy is a good gift from God. Already in James, James 1 says that every good and perfect gift you have, it's not from your hard work, though your hard work's important. It's not from the generosity from others, though the generosity of others is important. 
ultimately, every good and perfect gift you have is from God, from the Father of the heavenly lights. And, and, and that sort of remembrance, remembering that, it helps cultivate in our own lives humility and gratitude. And so prayer helps us be the sorts of people God designed you to be. This is why prayer is a priority. It's not just church lingo. It leads us back again and again to seeing that God is involved in your everyday life. It will help you ask how the reality of God's presence and how the reality of his, of his activity, what he's done, what he's doing, all those promises he's given to us, how the reality of his presence and activity, how it actually means something for, for the stuff this week that's been keeping you up at night. Hey, how, how, how the reality of God's presence and activity, it means something for the conflict that you are just in the middle of right now. Prayer makes a difference in all of those ways. Prayer is a priority because of all of these things. And so if prayer is as important as it is, and it is, then here's the question that I want to just ask you today. Do you pray? Is prayer just an idea to you? Is it just some emoji symbol that you slap on social media posts? Or do you pray? Is prayer part of the rhythms of your daily and weekly life? Do you factor the reality of God into your own life and then depend on him with and for others? Brookside's founding pastor, Steve Maltemeyer, was just a, a healthy example of this for me. A few years ago, we were out together uh, for lunch at Panera, and he got a text in the middle of our meal with some sort of health update from a friend. And we'd already prayed for the meal, but, but he's, he stopped us in the middle of our lunch, and he said, hey, hey, here's the update I got. He just talked at a high level about what was going on, and, and he said, let's just take a minute now and pray for this request that I got. And then he led us in that. What a great example, a practical example, showing us how the, how the priority of prayer actually takes shape, actually can, can, can be made manifest in the ebb and flow of our everyday lives. So James 5 shows us something about the priority of prayer. It also shows us something about the practice of prayer. Now, now prayer is one of those really big topics there's a whole lot of stuff you can learn on, right? I mean, there are all sorts of tips and tools that you'll continue to develop and learn what works for you as you grow in the practice of prayer as you follow Jesus. So a couple of just general things for, for me that have been helpful, like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 that he gives us. Just a great, really helpful, practical springboard or, or framework maybe into, into providing some shape and framework for my own prayers, I'm a reader, so if you're a reader, a couple books that I've found tremendously helpful that I'm always, always selling, right, are, are D.A. Carson's Praying with Paul, his book there, or Paul Miller's A Praying Life, two really helpful books. Already in this series on James, we've talked a little bit about the practice of prayer and some practical tools there. And then certainly it's true that over everything we say about how to pray, the best way to grow in prayer is just to pray, to actually do it to talk with God about what's going on in your life. Learning to pray and growing in prayer is a lifelong pursuit. 
true story. But as we practice prayer, as we continue to grow in that, as we look for all the tips and the tools that we can learn, James 5 includes one big thing that I want to make sure that we see. James 5 shows us the value of praying with others, having others pray for you and of you praying for them. Prayer as a community practice is actually all over this passage in James 5. The elders are praying for others. Or in verse 16, James speaks to to all of us, and he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. This is one of those commands. He commands us to be praying with and for each other. And so James's vision for, for a vibrant church community is that it is a praying community. And that now, if we're going to be a praying community, Brookside, which we need to be, we want to be, at least two things go into that. First of all, people in the community, they have to be vulnerable enough to open up with each other and share real needs. So, so the first thing that's required is vulnerability. This means that the requests you share aren't just for the lost pet of your second cousin's friend's aunt. Instead, you share things that have actually been getting your attention that week. You share the victories you've seen and the struggles you are are scared to death by. You share the things that are keeping you up at night. I've been in groups, usually some men's group, because that's just a lot of the groups I'm in, where conversation stays on the surface with, with the guys, right? Which is just natural, right? You're always not talking about super deep stuff all the time. It takes time to build trust. But, but I've been in some of those groups where, where there's just this point in the group that, that I can remember some of these times distinctly, where, where somebody in the group just takes this deep gulp. You, you can see them kind of fidget in their seat a little bit. And they share something that is deeply personal, deeply vulnerable. And then when they do that, the whole group grows through that experience. It's better for everyone. And then, then usually somebody else follows suit. And then a third guy shares something. And, and, and that sort of example, that sort of courageous vulnerability helps everyone practice what James is talking about here in James 5, being a praying community. So we need vulnerability if we're going to do this. Another thing that's required for a vibrant praying community is that the community has to be safe enough to receive what's said and handle it well. Nothing will break down trust and vulnerability faster than an irresponsible break in confidence. And nothing will break down trust and vulnerability faster than ridiculing the person who's sharing or disrespecting them in any way And so this means that your community group, maybe, because this is such a great place to to incubate and pursue this sort of praying together, your your community group or or just the pack that you run with, it has to pursue and protect this sort of trust if we're going to apply what James commands us here, to confess your sins to each other and to pray for each other. It It requires vulnerability and it requires safety and trust. So all of that is just tactics for us to be the sort of church that lives in to James's vision 
that the family of God, the church, is a praying community. And so here's the question for us that flows out of this. Who are you praying with? Does anybody know you well enough that they know your stuff? Do you know anybody else well enough that you know their stuff? It doesn't happen overnight. Let's give it the time it needs to build trust and relationship and credibility and all the stuff that's just assumed in this. But who are you praying with? Who's praying for you? And who are you faithfully and consistently praying for? So in James 5, we see the priority of prayer. We see something about the practice of prayer. And then in James 5, we see a lot about the power of prayer. Prayer isn't just mindfulness. It's not just being fully present in whatever moment you're in. Prayer isn't talking to yourself. Biblically understood, prayer is talking to the creator of everyone and everything, the good and sovereign God of the universe, our Heavenly Father, and bringing Him into the situations we're facing in our lives. That the power of prayer is all over this passage, right? God has chosen to use prayer to accomplish and affect things. It says it clearly in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. It's, it's effective. James calls to mind Elijah in the passage I read. Elijah is basically the premier dude on the pedestal, Old Testament prophet, right? In, in 1 Corinthians 17 and 18, you can read about this crazy story between the one man Elijah and all of these false prophets. God shows up in a big way. And around that same story, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, we read about Elijah proclaiming this drought over the land for three plus years. And then after three plus years, after that, Elijah prays. And it rains again. And the thing to note here in James 5 is that James puts us, you and me, every one of us here, he puts us in solidarity with Elijah. Elijah isn't just some superhero prophet that we can never get close to, that we can never touch. The, the reason James brings Elijah up, verses 17 and 18, he says, here's Elijah. He was a human being just like you. The same power of prayer that was available to Elijah is the same power of prayer that's available to you. And the reason is because the same God that Elijah prayed to is the same God that is still actively and presently involved in our world and in, and in the situation keeping you up at night this last week. We're still talking about the power of prayer. A little earlier in the passage, James talks about this prayer of faith that will make a sick person well. Verse 14, he says, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, this is probably the most controversial set of three verses in the book of James. There's just t -t -t tremendous variety 
about how to understand it, how to apply it, what it means for our lives. So, so what I want to do is I just want to spend a minute on this, cut through some of the peripheral matters, and I want to get to the core of what James is saying. In all of this, in this passage, we have to remember that the thing James is talking about is the power of prayer. That's his topic. That's what's on his mind. And then, and then he shows us in these verses what that means when someone is sick. James is telling us that prayer is powerful even in times of sickness. Certainly still go to the doctor. Certainly still take medicine. And certainly remember to pray. We practice what James is talking about here at Brookside. Our, our elders and other leaders gather with people who call on them to pray in times of serious sickness. Or if people gather in community groups to pray, we want to express bold dependence on God, asking him not for small, timid things, but for big things because we believe in a big God. And as we've done that, I, I firmly believe there are times we've seen people healed in miraculous ways. And so we will continue to ask God for big things in dependence on him and in submission to him. All of that is true, and all of that's going to stay true for us as a church, Brookside. And, and we know there are times when God doesn't heal physically. There are times when God doesn't answer the prayer, even when all the right words have been said, right? There are times when God doesn't come through for us the way we, we wanted him to. Earlier this week in our 365 Bible reading that we talk a lot about here at Brookside, I know a lot of you follow along with that. In our 365 Bible reading, we came across 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where, where Paul prays for God to remove a thorn in his flesh, is what Paul says. Uh, most people think this thorn in the flesh is some sort of physical ailment or, or some sort of physical weakness that Paul had. And, and if anyone could pray in faith, it would be Paul. I mean, God works in him and through him in tremendous ways. He wrote a bunch of our New Testament. So if God is listening to anybody, it's Paul, right? But even after Paul's repeated requests, God didn't physically change anything for him. The thorn remained. Paul's circumstances weren't changed. But Paul was changed. Here's what Paul says in his own words. 2 Corinthians 7, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. It's what he says. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. And so this isn't Paul praying casually. This is Paul on his face pleading to God to take away this thorn in his flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, not in strength, not in health, not in peak physical condition. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says then, 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What if the power that God shows through prayer isn't a change in your circumstances? But what if the power that God shows through prayer is a change in you? What if the power that God shows through prayer isn't to deliver you from your suffering? But what if the power God shows through prayer is to transform you through your suffering? At the end of the day, we want to pray big prayers to, to God in faith. But remember, our faith isn't in faith. Our faith is in God, our sovereign, good God, who is graciously working all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so let's go back to the big picture. In all of these ways, James is trying to build a case that prayer is powerful. Prayer actually does something. So now for our question, what about your prayers? Do do your own prayers actually reflect a conviction that God works in and through them? Are your eyes and is your heart open to the awareness of what God is trying to do and can do through the big prayers we ask, in dependence on and in submission to him? Are, Are our prayers big? Do you believe that God actually works through your prayers. A few years ago, a Canadian regional airline got a bunch of press for a a virtual Santa campaign that it initiated. So here's how it worked. Uh, When passengers checked in for a flight, they would scan their boarding pass, and then there was a virtual Santa there that would ask them for things they wanted for Christmas. And so, so obviously, in that sort of setting, all sorts of requests were made. Everything from like practical items like socks and underwear all the way up to the bigger ticket items like digital cameras or big screen TVs. And hidden cameras captured all of these requests that were being made. And so, so while these passengers got on the plane and, and were in flight from their departure city to the destination city, airline employees from, from the destination city, they rushed out, they bought the items that the people had mentioned into the camera, and they had them waiting for the passengers there when they landed wherever they landed, right? And so, so the man who asked for socks and underwear, he got socks and underwear. The, the woman who asked for a digital camera, she got a digital camera. It is 100% a good story of just selfless generosity on the part of this airline. Everyone got what they asked for. But one guy wrote this, his name is Sam Albury. He wrote this about the story, and he had great insight connecting that story to what we're talking about in James chapter 5. Here's what, here's what Albury says. He says, after the warm glow of watching this video of people receiving the gifts and reacting to that, after the warm glow of the video subsided, I had one thought in my mind. I bet the guy who only asked for socks is kicking himself, <laughs> Right? 
Once he'd realized what had happened, surrounded by people with expensive cameras and tablets, he must have felt a little foolish clutching a pair of socks. If only he had known. If only he had asked. And then Albury continues. He says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It is real. Things actually happen. How foolish we are not to pray far more than we do. How foolish, at the end of the day, aware of all that we could have had, to be left clutching the equivalent of a pair of socks. That we never even realized what we would get. Then he concludes saying, every Christian, everyone here can be a great and effective prayer. One of the things we talk a lot about as a staff is, is this value of ours, bold dependence, seeking God for such big things that we need God to come through on the things that we want to do for him. And, and we've got big things planned as we talk about launching an Elkhorn campus, as we, as we look forward to, to the Correctional Center campus, just the ebb and flow of our, of our weekly life as a church. Big things is, are going on. And in all of that, our, our driver is mission. We just want to help more people find and follow Jesus. And for any of that to really matter, for, for any of that to, to leave an imprint on eternity, Brookside, we, we have to be a church that is engaged in prayer. We have to be a church that, that, that lives into the reality of the priority of prayer. We have to be a church that practices prayer individually, but then as a community. And we have to be a church that has such a big view of God, what he can do, that prayer is powerful, that we're asking God for those things that only he can do. And so, so Heavenly Father, even now we pray. Father, we, we pray a prayer of thanks for the privilege of prayer, that through your Son we can approach you confidently, not because of what we do, anything we bring to the table, but because of what he's done. And Jesus, we, we pray that we would be a church of prayer, that you would do such a work in our hearts and in this place that we would feel in fresh ways the priority of prayer. Jesus, give us wisdom in how to practice it. Give us a desire to do that. And then Jesus, Help us to have such a big view of God that we, that we see the power of prayer through your Holy Spirit in our lives and in this place, Jesus, do these things. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.